Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Forward Podcast. I'm your host, Lance Armstrong. Um, I mentioned last week uh, in my intro that I was super excited about this week's podcast. And so that moment has come. Uh, Before we get to that, like I say every week, if you have any questions or comments, send me an email uh, at the email address is theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. We do is W-E-D-U. The Forward Podcast at WeDoSport.com. My guest today is is uh, is Malcolm Gladwell. He's obviously a, a very um, well known author, very successful author, brilliant man. Also a big fan of sports, not just your typical sports, although he is a fan of football, which we get into. Um, but I grew up actually, as as a, an incredible runner. He ran very, very fast in high school. He's now injured, which he, it's fun to talk about, but uh, unfortunately for him. But he's discovered cycling and is slowly and surely falling in love with the sport. Um, so you'll hear about that. Um, some, of his, some of his titles that you guys probably know are things like Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, David and Goliath. He also, too, has a podcast, uh, called Revisionist History that um, is one of the most popular podcasts in the world. I, I don't know if I mentioned this last week or not, but this podcast is a little more than an hour long. It was literally the fastest hour of my life. I was so uh, interested in what he was saying and sort of hanging on every word. I hope, uh, I hope you guys will be too. And um, I think the way we, you know, the way we ended is like, look, this is the end of part one. We were sort of jamming and I could have talked for four more hours or we could have talked for four more hours. So look forward to, uh, look forward to parts two and three and, and furthermore down the road. So, uh, hope you enjoy and, uh, here's Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm, thank you for being here. I'm delighted to be on the show. I know it's uh, we we always miss each other. It's always I'm in New York, and then you're not here, and then let's go for a run, and then now I'm hurt, and then yeah, now we finally made it. Now we're both hurt. We're both now injured. We're both hurt. Yes. And you've now found a new love for cycling. You told me. Well, I hurt sure. my knee, so I've you know I've been a serious runner my whole life. Uh, my knee is now. I I might actually my running days may be over, so I started. Road biking about three at the beginning of the summer, really, hmm. seriously. And uh, I've been going through, you know, I'm up to, I now routinely go on sort of 35 mile rides. Perfect. Um, and I am, I have been, you know, as a, as a serious runner, I always had slight disdain for cyclists. Okay. It has now been reversed. I have now. Well, now you have I, disdain for runners? Not disdain for runners, but now I have, okay. I am sort of in awe of, how hard it is, mm. Jesus! What you guys go through, and the the notion that you're now I don't I I now I used to sort of think the Tour de France, for example, was a kind of I mean I'd read books and like it's a hard thing. Now I have no understanding of how any human being puts their body through that kind of punishment. Right. I don't well, get it at all. Right. Like I look at the power numbers, I now you know or the you know just. What the what cyclists are capable of over extended periods of time, and it it doesn't compute. Right. So do you measure what you just do? Speed no, I haven't measured. I haven't got a, 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 a power meter. A power meter yet. I just do cadence. So I do. You know, I can't in 
if I go for a 20 mile ride, I can't break 20 miles per hour. Hmm. I mean, I can do 18. Something's wrong. 17. (laughs) By the way, I'm in really good shape, really good shape. And you're built like a cyclist. You're what you say? You're 100 one, less than 125. So that's yeah. I'm probably, you know, I was a. I'm a sub five minute miler. I've good. My VO2 max must be, you know, high. High. Right. Well, but, for the record, you're not a a sub. Not only a sub five minute miler, but at, in high school you ran the 1504. When I was yeah. When four, I was 14, 14, you did 410 or four. When I was, when I was. Uh, 13, I ran 4.14. When I was 14, I ran 4.05 for 1,500 meters. So 4.05, tran- for the, for us, America, translates to? 4.20, low, t- low 4.20s for the mile at 14. Okay, so that's not just a sub five-minute miler. I was a good, yeah, I was a very good high school That's runner. pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, I mean, I'm, I'm clearly, there's a learning curve for cycling, and I'm on it, but yep. I... I look at the, some of the numbers that people do, and I'm just like, Jesus, that's working hard. Yeah, I wonder what. Yeah, I'd have to see you ride and see maybe you know because you should. Anyways, it's and in, in, I don't know if you're factoring in stops or if you're if you're riding from your place downtown. What do you head to the West Side Highway? Well, so I'm doing this upstate. It's very hilly, so I might typically have okay, fifteen, sixteen hundred feet of climb right in a twenty-five or thirty-mile ride. Um, but still, that's not massive. And do you log it on? These you know things like Strava or, or I, I just haven't uploaded it to Strava. Uh, so you, I, you should be on Strava. I know, I know, but I'm I don't I don't I want to get good before I put it on Strava. Oh, you're now. Oh, you're one of those people. <laughs> yes. I'm I'm a little nervous about people seeing my performance publicly. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't you know I I mean it was embarrassing in the beginning. I mean I was doing, you know, I'd be, be averaging 14 miles an hour for. A twenty mile ride. I've got to like, see the position. Maybe the position. You should think, ride faster than that. Really, it doesn't make any sense. Or maybe you're. Are you riding like a beach cruiser? Or? No, I'm riding like a Scott. You know, a carbon fiber three thousand dollar bike. Right. Um, I've been. I don't think that my seat is high enough. Right. And I don't think that. Um, and I've been concentrating on keeping my cadence up. Yeah. I've been trying to keep over ninety RPMs. Yep. Um, so I I don't use the biggest gear. I never use the biggest front. Uh, the big ring. We call that the big ring. The big ring. I never use the big ring. <laughs> this is the most, uh, you know, I make it a point in this podcast. I, n- I never talk about cycling. Oh, really? Never. This is, this is, this yeah. is the most that I've ever talked about cycling on this podcast, for, uh-huh. as young as it is. Yeah. That was my whole thing. It was like, this, no, it's called the forward. Like, I don't, but I guess we are, we're, this is a forward issue. This is your. Well, I, well, cause yeah, cause we'll get to, cause I think this is really, what I really want to talk about is try. We were because, we were we were starting to talk about triathlon as we came up as we because I think it's this really fascinating problem. So now that I'm I'm a runner and I'm starting to bike. So now I'm think I can't swim, but I've been thinking about what it be. Sorry, when you say you can't swim, you mean you sink or you just are a bad I swimmer? Literally cannot swim. I never learned. Okay, I'm Jamaican. Jamaicans. Hang on a second. <laughs> if you got thrown in a pool, you would drown. I have no idea. Well, let's not find out. Let's <laughs> not find out. Okay. No, I mean my. I always tell the story. No Jamaican, so half my family is Jamaican. No Jamaican that I know can swim. My aunt has lived her entire life, 86 years, within one mile of maybe the most beautiful stretch of beach in the world. She's never been to that beach, (laughs) just to be clear. So my people and the water don't mix. Right. So I don't know how to swim. 
But I, but I thought of doing. Uh, just I hate to tell you this, but I'm googling Jamaican swim team. There must be a Jamaican Olympic swim. There has. There has to be. There is an amateur swimming association of Jamaica. There is a national yeah. team, so no, there so, are some that can swim. But I, I would venture that if you looked at the times, they're yeah. so terrible. They're like, we do some things very very well, sprinting. Right. Other things not so well. Uh, sprinting would be the, Reg- reggae music. I, there was a Jamaican who uh, distance runner. Uh, who lived, she was a steeplechaser, she lives in the States. She goes back to Jamaica f- to, for the Olympic trials to qualify in the steeplechase. They didn't have a steeplechase. In other words, there, there weren't enough people who wanted to run steeple for the Olympics in Jamaica. So they just did, they just like, all right, you're in. Ma- they, meaning they didn't have the hurdle in the water or no, they, they just didn't, didn't have the event? They didn't have the event okay. because there was no one who wanted to run it. Now, I would argue the water the water jump would be problematic for we Jamaicans, we don't right. want to deal with that. But anyway, my point is, I did think of doing, du- is it du- duathlons? Duathlons, run, yeah. bike. Run, so, bike, typically run, bike, run. Yes, run, right. bike, run. Which is a really, but these problems where you have to simultaneously uh, perform at a high level in a series of events that are in some sense contradictory is really interesting. So the decathlon is obviously the the most evolved version of this, that the thing that it takes to be good at the 1500 meters, the last event, is diametrically opposed to the thing it takes to be good at the shot put or the, that problem. So Ashton Eaton, to my mind is, he's so far the greatest athlete in the world. I don't even think anyone is in the same breath as him because he has managed to master that tension he won uh, the gold medal this summer? In the Olympics. At, yeah. Where is he from? He's, Amer- he's American. He's American. He's the greatest. He holds the world record. He's sort of acknowledged to be, he's up there, you know, in the pantheon of greats wow. in that, in that okay. Jenner. Um, uh, but, that, but that's the problem that people face in, that's the most real world problem. If you're running a, if you're the CEO of a company or you're an entrepreneur starting a company, you cannot... <clears throat> optimize for any one attribute, right? The minute you do that, yep. you compromise your ability to perform at a high level in other areas. And the job of being, of running a complex organization or starting a business or what have you, is all about four or five different things that have nothing in common, right? right. So being a good manager and optimizing the performance of any aspect of your company are often completely at yeah. being a good manager means saying to your employees, you, you, you do it, you take responsibility, even though by definition, they're not as good at it as you are. Right? So that problem, like my editor at the New Yorker magazine, David Remnick is a better writer than 95% of the people who work for him. But he never writes. He does write sometimes, sometimes but rarely <clears throat> he's constantly in this position of having to accept articles that are not as good as the one that he would write himself, right? He's reading this going, oh my God. (laughs) Exactly. So like, but if he were to be completely honest and say, I can't, I can't accept this, he wouldn't have a magazine. That's the triathlon problem, right? right? At a certain point, I have to say, I can't optimize for being an amazing runner because I have to worry about, you know, swimming or... Cycling. But so many, and this is what we were talking about. There's so many, obviously you have the swim and the bike and the run. It's obviously almost 99.9% of the time in that order. It yeah. might be might be wild to do it in a different order. 
Well, actually, I want to talk about what would happen. Let's, what would, let's get to that. If it, you reversed orders, oh, how that would, would change. Your outcome would be completely different. But I would argue, and, and just from, based on my own experience, there's actually a fourth leg there, and that's the nutritional part, and we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. I mean, because the swim and the bike and the run put together, the, the, I think those are all struggles. I think most people's biggest struggle is the nutritional part. When you get why to these, you, that's interesting. Why do you what, so? Why do you say that? These longer events, so the high end, the top end guys for a half Ironman's four hours, for a full Ironman's eight hours, but most people it's seven hours and fourteen hours, right? Yeah. I don't know what the average finishing time is. Those are long efforts, long hard efforts. You're not out there just lollygagging and talking to your buddies like like you do in cycling a lot. Uh, so, so the effort is, in, is intense enough that it's, it's difficult for the gut to process food. Mm-hmm. And that was the mistake I made back in, in 2012 when I was doing tries is I was trying to eat, 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 thinking I'm going, I'm looking at my heart rate. I'm looking at my Watts. I must need food. And I think people think that way. So they either eat too much or eat too little. And, mm-hmm. and then trying to find that balance between those two, trying to find the balance between liquid and food. I what happens when you eat too much? Uh, there, there's a scientific term for it, but you're, you're basically, and you know what these race foods are like, very sugary, very sweet. Yeah. They're, not, they're not whole food. Um, so once the gut just gets pounded with gels and chews and sweet things and calories, it just shuts off. And you will actually see it. Like I would actually see my gut. I wish I knew the actual... Uh, word for it but you see the gut because it's not processing that food anymore the gut but yet you're still putting in fluid and mm-hmm. and 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 food the gut just expands it just blows up like a balloon and uh and, and then it, it, is that is there an event of so this is is this a, a most of it, a, the biggest issue in the running portion or the cycling portion well for me it would yeah. start on the bike yeah because i that's where it's for me it was easier to eat and drink a lot Obviously, running, it's difficult to eat. So it would start for me on the bike, and I think this holds true for a lot of people. And then once you get to the run, once that gut has shut off, then you're not getting the calories. So then you get to the run, and you're thinking, I've eaten all this energy, quote-unquote energy, and mm-hmm. I have no energy because it's not processing it. So it's not getting to the places it needs to get to. Yeah. It's a mess. I mean, it, it it's a real story. I mean, if you went on the message boards for Slow Twitch, which is like the big triathlon website mm-hmm. and, and yeah. message form, it's – that is probably one of the most common discussions on there is the nutritional part. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And it was, and I struggled with it until I finally figured it out. And then it. Then I was how like, did what? I'm also curious about how did you accept the comp? So you're doing training for swimming and and uh, running. Your two, your two less, your less strong sports. Right. Um, it must be the. It must have been psychologically incredibly difficult to accept the fact that you're that you are compromising your cycling. No, no. Here, here's the thing. So for me, and I think this holds true for everybody that does that sport. Everybody has one. Of, one of the sports is their strength. They have a running background, a swimming background. Mm-hmm. I came from a swimming background, so all I needed to do was just sort of maintain the feel for the water, quote unquote, feel for the water. And I wasn't going to win the swim, but I wasn't. I was going to come out with the leaders. The ride, I just rode enough just to maintain a certain level, so that I could ride fast and conserve energy, so that I could actually run. So I focused most of my energy on my weakness, which was running, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is probably what people ought to do. And I think people 
look, the, the, the ratios are the, the, the ratio and try is always four to one. The bike is always four times as long as the run, four parts to one. Mm-hmm. You, nobody can train four parts to one, right? It's very difficult to ride 200 miles a week and run 50 or ride yeah. 300 and, and run 75. That's hard. So you got to change. I think you have to go to six or seven parts to one just so you can, which is still a lot of running, yeah. assuming you're riding enough. But yeah, I mean, that was, that was, uh, I, I didn't find it. I wasn't worried about sacrificing the bike. I mean, I, I knew that. Look, I made a joke years ago, or I made a statement that w- that was that was I just got crushed for. I said because certain types of triathlons are they allow drafting and and mm-hmm. everybody stays together in the swim. I called it a shampoo, uh, a hair dry, and a ten k. And I mean, <laughs> the Olympic and that that's the Olympic structure is this. Yeah. So, yeah. The Olympic athletes, I mean, they completely crucified me. Yeah. Um, so I won't go back to revisiting that or <laughs> staking out a position on that. But yeah. Wait, so what happens if you, what would happen if the, the order were changed? What's the most, is the order that we have now the hardest order or the easiest order? Look, if you go back to the origins of the try, the try kind of, was basically invented in Hawaii, right? So they took a, a famous open water swim. They took a century ride mm-hmm. that was that they, I think they did in um, Honolulu, and then they took the Honolulu Marathon and they combined them and they put them in that order: swim, bike, run. They probably put the swim first because if you put it last, the consequences of failure are right. large. It would be Perhaps. really you have people that are tired and cramping, yeah. and you'd have people would be dying all over the place. So let's put that first. Yeah. And between the bike and the, I mean, I don't know why they chose the bike second and the run third. But if you if you switched it, look, as it sits today, it, the run is always going. Whatever happens last is the most important thing. And if you're naturally a better runner, then then you have an advantage. If the bike was, if it went swim, run, bike, then the best cyclist would have would be the best triathletes. I think. Oh, it's, it's stacked. In, yeah, it does strike me as being subtly. Uh, favors the the runner, the by it's and in a way that I think that's right. So what I my question is why wouldn't if you have a a circuit, why wouldn't wouldn't it be more fair if running and cycling were reversed? Like you would have, you know, half with running last and half with running in the middle. Oh, so like week one is yeah. Run, I mean, well, it should could. be it I should mean, be balanced out because it's it's crazy to to structure a, a competitive event right. in such a way that privileges a very small number of the of the of the competitors right well we should probably use this opportunity to announce to the world the malcolm and lance triathlon series right, <laughs> right. So, so january we're going to end with a run february we're going to end with the bike because i would i if i was thinking now that i know a tiny bit about cycling uh it's funny actually i would have thought it was a lot easier i would much rather ru- do the bike do the running in the middle it strikes me that i'd rather be tired on the bike than tired at the beginning of my run yeah um but that may be because i'm uh that may reflect my kind of primitive understanding of of cycling i think we missed the window i mean i I think that sport while for a long long time people almost dismissed it and thought oh these crazy endurance people and Mm -hmm. i I think it is such a big business now but i think all of these endurance sports i mean we're sitting here over central park i mean you think about the new york city marathon here mm-hmm. 40,000 runners the, the 
the amount of sponsorship, the entry fees, the 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 total net spend for that event, people flying from all over the it's a tremendous a huge, huge event. Yeah. So it tries the same way. I mean the Ironman Corporation was just sold for I think eight hundred million dollars to a mm-hmm. Chinese group. Mm-hmm. So we it's probably too late to recreate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the the other thing that's interesting about the mindset of of cycling and I'm making a very, very naive observation, but it feels I, f- I feel a lot more like a race car driver than I do like a runner. Hmm. And it was the kind of the investment in tech and the degree of so you talk about nutrition. It strikes me the cyclists are a generation ahead of the runners when it talks when when it comes to nutrition. We don't even. I mean, I know at the very very elite level, the Nike guys, you know, they are concerned about nutrition, but even relatively serious runners, it just doesn't come up. I remember once I. Had, a friend I used to run with as a kid who was a, ended up as a world-class runner describing to me really primitive ideas about nutrition and all the kind of runners around him were like, really? Wow. You think about that stuff? Like r- running seems really basic. You know, the there was an article written about uh, Kenneth Bekele who just won the Berlin Marathon and he's the world record holder in the 5K and the 10K, one of the greatest distance runners of all time. He's Ethiopian. And a guy wrote a, a Westerner, goes to Ethiopia to hang out with Bekele and writes an article about it. It was completely fascinating. Bekele had been injured. And basically, when you try to understand his injury, basically, he needed to have a lot more physical therapy. He needed to have somebody, he needed to have a, a, a professional masseuse work on his body because he had muscles that had knotted up and it was basic stuff. He didn't have it. In fact, he had an idea. Yet he's the best, one of the best in the world. He, but he had an idea in the article that <clears throat> he didn't want a masseuse working on his body who had worked on someone else recently because he didn't want the, he felt there was some kind of spiritual vibe that would go from the other person to him that would hamper his ability to run. So as a result, he would always say no to anyone who wanted to work on his body. So he couldn't train because he had this massive knot in his calf. Now, this is a guy who is the greatest distance runner uh, ever. I mean, just by time. And he is, his understanding- He's afraid of cooties. He, I mean, but his, for cultural reasons or what have you, right. he is operating at a kind of, at a level that cycling hasn't been operating at for 50 years no. or 30 years. A hundred years. So it's like, but you, so these two sports, they're like, they exist in different universes. Mm. I mean, relatively, you know, sub-elite cyclists are a generation ahead of sub of sub-elite runners. There's no, there's just no question yeah. there. But it's more the sport is more technical. The, there is more gear. There is more. There, there's more apparel. There's more. It's just it's more complex. Yeah. Not, not not. I'm not trying to. I mean, running is a simpler sport, right? You throw your running shoes on, your shorts, and your singlet, and you go. Obviously, it's not that simple. But cycling. Is just more technical. I mean, it would be like walking versus downhill skiing. You just have more stuff. Yeah, right? and, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm struggling with that a little bit, and I'm also struggling with the fact that uh, that there there's so I find uh, cycling. I really enjoy it, but I find the levels of discomfort that you deal with are so much more. There's so many more. Like when you're ten miles into a run, when I am ten miles into a run, I have no physical discomfort. It's all pushed to the <coughs> side. I'm in that kind of bliss state. Mm-hmm. When I'm two hours into a bike, I'm 
very, very conscious of all of the parts of my body that are not functioning as I want them to function. That's not that. That's because you're. I think that's because it's you think new I'm to not you. Set up right on the bike. Well, that could that could be part of it. It's hard to say, but I think it's that you're just new to it. I think if yeah. you took a, a, a somebody who had ridden their whole life and then asked them to go do a, even an eight mile run, they would be mis- It would be the same, the, the same, same sensation. Of, yeah, yeah. I want to, and I only think of this because you were talking about the Kenyan athletes and the Kenyan runners. And, and, you know, the marathon, we're getting close. I say we're getting close. I mean, we're three minutes off or, or so, approximately three minutes off from a sub-two-hour marathon. Yeah, really close. Which is, the, I mean, is really close, but at the same time, it's, we're not that close. I mean, we're... Yeah, two minutes is a long... So two minutes would be, uh, you know... Percentage-wise, it's, it's... It's not trivial. Right. Um, and you figure that now, so in the... So Bekele, who wins last weekend he went, wins berlin berlin is a completely flat course yep it's, uh, conditions say the old, yeah it's the fastest temperature course, wise much. he has uh pacemakers he has yep. he's running against wilson kipsang former world record holder they're basically running together through much of the race so the world record is now 20257 yeah and bekele runs 20302 Two this, or just now he ran 20303. So he, yeah. wow, he's six seconds off. Six the seconds world. off. I didn't realize. Poor that. guy. But by the way, to, fi- to finish a marathon six seconds shy of the world record has got to be, because you know, this, right. you just think, how many, uh, how many curves did I not do the, do the hypotenuse on? How many, you know, right. you just think, oh my God, did I leave? You leave, you know, you left 20 seconds out on the course, right? Yeah. He's got to be killing himself. Yeah. But, um, but so the question is how, so under ideal conditions, the greatest uh, uh, distance runner of his generation is now three minutes shy of the two-hour barrier. Right. But like I just said, this is a guy who is not operating at the, we know that he, he didn't even want a masseuse working on his problematic. Uh, <laughs> so it's like, if I, that, we are, I think, I think two, Two hours is totally possible. Interesting. Um, just because in, of the- in, in when? Like, I mean, obviously it is going to happen. I don't know that you or I will be, will be around, but totally possible. Of course it's possible, but- If I gave, Bekele's 34. So if Bekele at 28 had or 25 had moved to Oregon and joined the Nike Oregon Project and been coached by the greatest coach in the world, Alberto Salazar, had access to all of the cutting edge stuff they have, the- does he, you know, can he, can he chomp on that a minute off his marathon time? Yeah, I think so. I think we, could, I think we'd be looking at, at two hundred one, two hundred one thirty right now. Oof. With the same courses, not special pavement, not special. Well, then, so then you could go. You know this you can, idea you can, about you can address the 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 the, the surface, the the issue yeah. of the running surface. Yeah. So then, well, then we could get. So we're waiting for the. Someone has this idea of doing. If you do a marathon at below sea level, you good. the New York Times did a big that the, whole thing. Did you two or three, that? Yeah. yeah, the two so or three part series on the guy who's Dead Sea. He's, yeah, he's yeah yeah he's the, a huge yeah. huge profile they did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So there are we can play some games there. I mean, I still think the biggest gains come from uh, paying the same kind of attention to that we have, we have a pool of elite marathoners who are not participating at the highest level of. Mm. Uh, what we understand about training and nutrition. And I think if you can get that, if you can get the Kenyans and the uh, and the Ethiopians to what's going on in places like 
uh, Nike Oregon project, yep. then you and I think you have a, a shot. Yeah. You know, I spent I worked with Salazar a little bit when I was doing tries and just just. And I know that, 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 that there will be some in the audience snickering a little bit because Alberto and the Oregon Project hasn't been without controversy. Although that controversy was so bogus. I yeah. mean, it was like, I mean, it was basically a controversy about TUEs, but what kind which of is, exemptions? Which is really a controversy the last week with... Although, but every one of those... So the for those listeners who noticed, the Russians hacked into the... WADA or the U.S.? They, they, they hacked... Well, the Database. The, yeah, the group, they called themselves Fancy Bears. Yeah. So Fancy Bears hacked into the WADA database and, and, and got people's personal records and their TUEs, which for those at home, TUE means therapeutic use exemption, which you can apply for, things like cortisone and, yeah. and other, even DHEA, things like that, and they can get. But it was also, the stuff they found is also incredibly tame. It's like, you know, Gail and Rob had a... At 2009 had a TUE for his asthma. I mean, I'm sorry, he has asthma. Yeah. Um, it, the whole, I mean, the sort of, the level of hysteria that surrounds this stuff is... Um, is I, I, I think, I mean, it's, 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 I have to be careful, you know, touching on this because people listen to me talk about it and they're like, listen to this fucking guy. I mean, he has yeah. no cred. Yeah. And hearing you talk about it and, and, and be almost... Um, not cool with it, but just be, but, but be accepting of it. Uh, there are so many people that are just not. I mean, it, it is especially in cycling. There, there's the story of Bradley Wiggins and his TUEs in and around the tours that he won, mm-hmm. and, and 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 I mean, people are are just lighting themselves on fire. They're so mad about this. So it's not. It, it is a big deal to some. I find it shocking too, because when you talk about cortisone and things that that um that that i mean i was contacted by so many people can you comment can I, i'm like guys what what are you what, are, what am i commenting about there's a process in place he applied for the tue i'm sure yes maybe they were using it for some mm-hmm. little more than asthma but he was within the rules yeah so it's the debate is is, is endless like it just it just turns it's, over and over and over and, people, and nobody a, gets anywhere there's a core fact here which and again this is something i mean one thing that always strikes me about these debates within the world of sports about performance is how closely they parallel, in general, debates about high performance in society. So we are now in a situation, for example, where we know that an extraordinarily high percentage of students, um, particularly at elite universities, are regular users of drugs like Adderall. Why? Because Adderall and Ritalin don't just treat people with legitimate ADHD, they also confer a performance benefit on people who would otherwise be classified as normal. These are performance-enhancing ha- drugs, which if you're facing a huge test the night before or you need to study in some way, allow you to perform better. You know, we have data that suggests there's a, an appreciation, or at least, I mean, even if we don't have data, people believe there is a performance-enhancing benefit to using Adderall, so they take Adderall. And the numbers are extraordinary. I mean, they're not trivial. It's not 5% of students. If you go to Harvard Law School, I would, I don't know, I would I wanna, venture. I want to hear this number. I would venture that more than 50% of the students are taking something, whether it's ProVigil to help them study or Adderall the day before some major test. And then oh, if you shit. go to Silicon Valley and you talk to someone oh, who's yeah. coding yeah. Uh, 15, 16 hours a day for several weeks, are they taking some kind of performance? 
Yes, they are, as it turns out. If you ask them, what are they on? They'll tell you what they're on, right? So we're at a stage now where it's routine at the highest levels of performance in many aspects of our society for people to understand that if you're going to do something, try and perform physically and intellectually at a level that previous generations of people did not, you need help, right? You enlist the, the best of science to help you through that. Similarly, you know this, when you look at the kinds of training that people, cyclists in now undergo, or runners now undergo, compared to what they did two generations ago, there's no comparison. Yeah. In swimming, someone, swimming, actually, we should not talk about cycling, we should talk about swimming. Because swimming, I find, there's something about swimming that I, I just find the, the conversation about swimming, I simply don't believe a word of it. There's something, so here's a group of people. You're talking about the, 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 my listener, the listeners know the swimming is my favorite sport, so okay. here we go. Okay. So I love, love, love. Okay, swimming. I know, I am a, to I am a, I know running cold. Right. I know a tiny, tiny bit about cycling. I know zero about swimming. So an outside, this is an outsider looks at swimming, and I see the fact that A, every year the amount of, training these guys seem, does, seems to increase. So they're doing workouts now that they're in the pool so many hours a day that God knows. And two, every time they sit, they step in the pool at a major event, they break world records. So I'm used to world records being broken in running every five years, 10 years. You know, Michael Johnson's 400 meter time stood for 20 years. Van Nierick breaks it at the Olympics. It's like a huge deal. Like there was that, my favorite moment of the Olympics is like the look on Usain Bolt's face when he sees Van Nierick break the 400 meter world record. He was like, holy shit. Like it was such a kind of rare epical event that everyone was floored. We were floored by that record. Okay, in swimming, these guys, they put their toe in the water and they break a world record. Like, will someone explain this to me? Outside of, there has to be some, there's something going on there that I don't get. Is it that, is it that every year like clockwork, training and nutrition and swimming gets better? Is it that every year like clockwork, the pool of people attracted to swimming grows and so we have a better talent pool? That doesn't seem to be the case. What's going on? Uh, well, uh, well, I don't know the answer to that. I uh -huh. will say that there, there was, for a period there was, swimming sort of fell into this technology <clears throat> um, trap where, they, where yeah. the suits were, were, were covered more of the body, were, were not skin, obviously. I mean, yeah. in the old days, Mark Spitz, he jumped in the pool, he was wearing a little Speedo. Yeah. And it was all skin. It, obviously, no hair, he shaved down. Yeah. Um, but that was, and then the suits got bigger. They, they looked like almost like a bike short, and then they got full body. So th those were, that was a technology that, is, that yeah, absolutely. One generation of, right. of, of world records. That's one generation. But it keeps going. They're now, you know, now the, the question is, is as, as the suits are now back to basically looking like a bike short, um, just sort of waist to top of the knee, uh, they're just now getting back to beating those records. Mm -hmm. um, but hell, I don't know. I mean, I, I swimming looks different to me. I mean, the strokes yeah. look different. The one thing, the, the most, and which is the most beautiful thing to watch, like you watch Michael Phelps come into the wall and make that flip turn and come off the wall underneath so when you're swimming you're swimming mm -hmm. on top of the water all that water is moving towards the wall right imagine yeah. you, you can't really see it but that water these these fuckers they're like boats so they're pulling all this water into the wall they make the flip turn he goes you know in the old days they just came off the wall and started swimming again he goes way down below 
that water that's moving towards the wall, and he stays underwater. And with and so that I think the flip turn and their ability to stay underwater was a was a big. So that gives you buys you a whole nother. If set you of- have the lungs to make that turn and come off the wall underneath all the water that's still running towards the wall, and and just stay there and you know dolphin kick out of it. Whereas yeah. you see guys, I mean Phelps is just staying underwater. Yeah, and he's just passing people because there are these other guys are on top of the water like swimming. Yeah, yeah. I mean that I you know. So you can get so technique can get you along get you a long way in swimming that, that can't obviously get you in running. You can't there's no equivalent in running where a where a technical change can give you can give you that kind I of don't, I don't think so. And obviously I mean look at look at Michael Phelps. I mean it would be an it would be an interesting discussion. But it's not just Phelps. It's no, it's not everyone Phelps. But Phelps made changes in his life that that yeah. were obviously going to be beneficial for him. Yeah. I mean, he was he was a mess. I think it's one of the greatest I love that story. Yeah. Love that story. So, but, but the other, and you know, like these dudes are, I don't know. It'd be interesting to go like get shoe sizes for the entire, you know, Olympic team. I mean, they're, 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 they're literally wearing fins. I mean, you would, what's your shoe size A 10? Yeah. And these dudes are like 15, 16, they're like flippers. Uh-huh. I don't know. But in the old days, I don't know. I, I'm a believer. You're bullish. I'm. Uh, no, no, I'm not. I'm not. I, actually, I should clarify. You're bearish. I'm not I'm suggesting uh, that something nefarious is going on. Okay. I'm just saying I require an explanation like when I look at, uh, when you look at any kind of elite performance, you look at the the trajectory of the hundredth percentile, right? So how often are world records broken? How how good are the very best? The swimming trajectory just, I mean, it, it astonishes me. You know, it's it's interesting, and I'll and I'll I'll use myself as an example, and I'll and I'll open myself up for this, and and peop, you know the the sort of those those people. That, that you know who I'm talking about will love this or not. You know, people in cycling look at times, right? They look at times up Alpe d'Huez. They look at times up Mont Ventoux. They look at average speeds over the course of three weeks. And then they they look at what they considered, it, which was a dirty generation, my generation. Mm-hmm. And then they look at this new generation, which is is allegedly a clean generation or a different generation. Well, the times are as fast, if not faster. Mm-hmm. So it leads to this. So they're like, well, hang on. If those all of those guys were dirty, and you guys are supposedly clean, how can you be? And in not that long, I mean, we're talking 10, 15 years. So there's a little bit of a dip, and then the times return to the yep. levels they were in the yep. uh, early aughts, late nineties. Yep. What's your explanation? Uh, I, I don't have a like like I don't have a nefarious uh, suspicion. I, I, I think that I do think that they're. You know, when we raced, there was there was no out of competition testing. There was no you show up to the race, they would test you. So the way the substances worked then, and I guess still now, is the half life was very short. Mm-hmm. If they weren't testing you at home, it wasn't they couldn't find it. Yeah, and 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 if they tested you at the race, it was long gone. Yeah. So that has all changed. They come to their you know the whereabouts program, the way that they test them, which is is a question with Kenya and Ethiopia and some of these more rural places. Like, can you get there? To, to actually test these guys in the buildup mm-hmm. for a big event, um, so I, I don't think that this current crop would take that risk. I, I, so whether it's whether it's equipment, whether it's diet, I mean, it's all the things they tell us that it is, and and I tend I tend to believe them, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm not I can say whatever the hell I want to say. Were you? This is a incredibly naive question. In your era, did you race with power meters? Yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah. We towards the so. 
you know, I've turned pro in 1992, and at that, from 92 to 96, was heart rate based. There was no power meter. Okay. Nin- Mid 90s, yeah. they started. They, they were these bulky things, very primitive. And then I was diagnosed and came back. And when I came back in 98, 99, they were very much refined, very refined. And they were, were people using that information and that data to, in the same way then as they are now? No. Like, Froome, is Froome using his power data in a very different so, way than so you here's, did? So here's the key difference, right? We used the power meter only for training. And we followed it. I mean, if, if it said mm-hmm. the world was flat, the world was flat. Like, we mm-hmm. really followed it. And I wouldn't race with it, right? I, I, I used it for the buildup. I used it for the training. I knew where I was. I got in the race, and I just went on my instinct. Yeah. They now use it all the time. So when they get into a race, and, I, and again, I'm not, I, I haven't been in that peloton in a long time, but if they're on the Mont Ventoux and they go to, and they make an attack, mm-hmm. it, it's not, I don't, I think there may be some uh, dynamics in and around the race, looking at the other guys, he looks weak, or I feel mm-hmm. good, or this is my chance, et cetera. But when they get going, all they're looking at is the power meter. Now, do you think you would have done better had you used the power meter in that way? I don't know. I, I was I was more emotional than that. I was be like, you know, I was I did in the race and be like, fuck these guys. Let's let's get it on. Yeah. <laughs> so, and and I, I, my my arrogance and, and and bravado would have overridden what the power meter said. But but this is really interesting because there's so uh, does but does slavishly following the the evidence of the power meter during race con, could it confer a sizable benefit over non-power meter racing um yeah i mean it, well it certainly well unrelated it, it it makes it more i mean i think people would argue that the, the racing is so robotic and it's, yeah it's it's, it's 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 too calculated and scripted and it's just not dynamic yeah but that could also be that we raced in a generation where red cells were everywhere and so guys could be dynamic Whereas now they're not racing in that era, so they have to they have to be a lot smarter. If they're going to make an attack yeah. or make a move, yeah, you better really be sure. Back in our day, you could make one if it didn't work. You'd chill out for a little bit. You go go again. You can't do that now. Yeah, yeah. It seems. Yeah, yeah. And 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 you hear from people that, and I try not to weigh in, but you do hear from people that it's it's just not as entertaining. Yeah, I, I think there's other ways to make the sport more. From a content perspective, make it more entertaining, right? You have all these metrics. For example, it's so funny. Cycling will say, you know, race radio. We don't like race radio. We don't want the riders communicating with the cars and the, and the directors. And, and power meters, we want to get rid of power meters. I look at this and I go, fuck that. Embrace it and broadcast it. Like, oh, like NASCAR, open up race radio. Let me hear what Froome and Brailsford are talking about. Yeah. Why Post- not? I thought this was about for running, but I, I feel like this is where we're headed, where when you're watching a race on the screen, there will be all of the numbers for all of the competitors. So I can see, you know, imagine if you could see someone's, all of someone's vital signs, you know, in the last push of a, of a, of a cycling race or in the last lap of a, of a, I mean, what's, I mean, even something as simple as heart rate you know, in the last uh, uh, half mile of a marathon in the Olympics, if I could see exactly everyone's physiological 
signs. I mean, yeah. it'd be, it would just add a, and then you would know what they so, were up against. And, and I and I made notes of what we should talk about. I mean, listen, I could talk to you for this could be a fucking six hour podcast. It's not going to be, but I mean, one of the notes was this idea of wearables, and if once where I don't know where wearables really are mm-hmm. in terms of how effective they are, and accurate they are, where we are. But we know we know where they're going. To we be. know where they can go, right? Yeah. And so, yes, with wearable, I mean, you could measure somebody's lactate, you could measure somebody's hydration, you could measure, obviously, their heart rate, you could measure their body temperature. I mean, it would be, you would be watching this thing going, this, you know, you would just be predicting or trying to predict based on these parameters Mm -hmm. what's going to. It also changes training. So, when you were talking about technique with Phelps and how Phelps, so in swimming, you have this ability because of the, nature of the sport Mm -hmm. there are all these tweaks that the swimmer can do to radically improve his or her performance in running we do that by um in a much less sophisticated way your coach eyeballs you or maybe you get on one of those stride monitors and they give you feedback on the nature of your stride but with wearables it strikes me we're in a situation where that could be done in real time so we know the big issue in running is i can tell you about what your optimal stride is, and that's you can you can live up to that optimal stride when you're uh, when you at the beginning of a race. Right. The issue is what happens or to on you. an easy run. Yeah, on an easy run right. is what happens to you under conditions of fatigue when you get sloppy. So when imagine, I mean, when I think of wearables, I think they become incredibly useful if in um, in in kilometer eight of the ten k you're starting to get feedback on what you're doing wrong. What's falling apart? How do you, you're over, you know, the minute you start overstriding or the minute it, you know, you get some kind of message that tells you, or even, or in a more routine sense, if there are certain, like I had problem with, uh, I have a, a, I have all these problems with my right knee. And I also have a very, very, uh, my right side is much weaker than my left side, right? It took me a long time to learn that. But you can imagine wearables that, in, that um, on an ongoing basis would gather data from you during training, and you would download all that data, and it would tell you the difference in activation of certain muscle right. groups. And the, so there's a, the potential of they that. They can do that now, theoretically. Theoretically. Yeah. But the idea that of, so, but this leads to my second point. The potential of this, so if you just think about wearables as a, a way of reducing the risk of injury, if you reduce the risk of injury in a sport like running, what you do is potentially, you could potentially double the existing talent pool. Right. So some enormous percentage of people who have the talent to potentially be world bait beaters never get there because they get hurt. Getting hurt is like, you know, insanely common in running. There are, so we lose, I, I think I think it's probably fair to say we lose half of the potential elite The field. Pool, the field. So we could double the field. If we could double the field yeah. in running, where would our where would the American records be in dis- distance racing if we doubled the field of of elites? They would yeah. be. I mean, they would. America would be the U.S. I think, or, the, or would be back as a world class. And then, if, I mean, if you do it in the the gains on that among Ethiopians and Kenyans are even greater. Right. I mean, we don't even know how many how many people they lose to injury. They are putting. They're taking literally thousands of kids throwing them into the, the most brutal training regimen possible and extracting a dozen each year. Yeah. I mean- Yeah, it's could, a national sport for them. It's a national sport. So, I mean, you start 
you start so, dealing with that, and the efficiency of the system becomes so much greater. Right. So the wearable, which which I think you just said both things. I mean, obviously, real time in the race, you're focused on the performance. Like, what what am I doing wrong? And let's get back to perfect, or to get back yeah. as close to perfect as we can. By the way, the analyzing the stride and and you know the form, all those that we all they do i mean they do that at the Oregon project and that's yeah but they do obviously but it, like i said it doesn't give you the information when you need it most Real time. right so yeah. so you're in the race you're trying to get back to perfect because you're trying to win the race but i think the big thing as you just said which i'm glad you said it was over time as you get farther and farther away from optimal and more into that danger zone you just get hurt and that's yeah i mean we're both we're both hurt now we're yeah. both cyclists <laughs> okay i want to i have i, I and I was thinking about telling you, I was like, I was like, you know, you can look online, you can read all your stuff. And I was like, fuck that. I mean, I, I just have questions. Like, as I walk through my day, it's like, I have questions about stuff. And, I, and, and I'm not smart enough to answer the questions. But so I was like, well, I'll ask Malcolm those questions because he's like the smartest dude I know. Very kind of you. No, not true, but I'm sure. But go ahead. Well, I don't know. I yeah. have to think long and hard. But so I just want, and this is this is a complete departure from endurance mm -hmm. and and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just watched Citizen Four. Mm -hmm. Have you? Did you see Citizen? Four? I haven't seen it. No. You haven't seen? Did you yeah. see any? Did you see Kill Switch about no, Snowden and Aaron Schwartz? I mean, I know I know about them, but I, I I'm fascinated by this this uh, this Ed Snowden story, mm -hmm. and I just I don't know where you. I want to know where you sit. On that story, and then obviously, I mean, last week in the Times there was an entire page, you know, pardon Snowden, and yeah, I'm nervous about. I mean, look at my. I have my computer. I have on my computer. I've got the because I watched oh, season now, four. Yeah, yeah, you've now covered up. I mean, apparently the camera on my laptop, according to Snowden and according to Citizen Four, and, uh, you know, they can go through the system and just be checking us out. Yeah, like if that can happen. Yeah. Well, that is fucked up. Well, everything, I mean, what Snowden tells us, reminds us, is something we don't want to face, which is that uh, the notion of security in the internet age is nonsense. Um, I mean, just let's not even talk about the Yahoo hack this week and this like long, it is now a routine matter for hospitals to have their data taken for ransom. Do you know this? This is something that is so mind boggling. It's happened repeatedly now. Hospitals don't even tell anyone. Somebody will lock up a hospital's hack-in, lock up all of their patient records, and say, unless you pay me X number of dollars, you won't have any access to it. Like, that happens. They just pay these ransoms. It's a cost of doing business now. We have... And that gets no publicity. It gets no publicity. You have... Basically, it looks like any determined hacker can hack into any system they want. Nothing... All... Virtually every... You know, we had the Russians hacked into the DNC. We have the Russians. The State Department had to shut down its servers two years ago because they couldn't get Russian malware off it. At the same time that we are going after Sony Hillary was, Clinton. Sony was hacked. Sony was hacked. I mean, that was the first big one. That was the first big one. At the same time as we're going after Clinton for uh, for using her BlackBerry as opposed to the State Department servers, the State Department servers were being hacked. In other words, she mo she moved her email off the server that was hacked to one that was not hacked, and we got angry at her. Like, the whole conversation is so screwed up and twisted. And it's, at a certain point, we have to ask the question, do we want to live in a world where there's no privacy, online privacy? Right. Or do we want to radically alter what we do so that we get privacy back? 
So to the extent that Snowden uh, forcibly brings this question to our attention, I think he's a hero. I get, I just get nervous when people start, uh, uh, when, when you compromise the national security assets of a country um, uh, in that larger way, and without sort of systematically going through it, just kind of putting it out there, people get killed. That's my, that's my only, I don't know whether, I don't know, I mean, I'm not a, I know that whenever I talk to someone who's in the national security world, they get really, really uncomfortable with the way that, that, uh, that information was dealt with. They're not, I think they may on a philosophical level accept that, you know, there were things our government was doing that needed to be brought to light. I'm down with that. But I just worry that, look, we also are in a society where, we have a large group of people who are trying to protect us. And I think we should be really, really careful when we tread on their world so yes. that. Right. Which we all can agree with. I mean, how yeah. could you not agree with that? Is it fair to say, or is it logical or, or right to say that, that there's such thing as too much information, right? So if you're, so if you're, you know, I don't know what you call it, but you're, you know, it adds up to metadata, but, you're following the grandmother in in you know in Des Moines. Yeah, I mean, no, they went. It's I mean, so clear you're trying they to find crazy. Yeah, but that was remember. I mean, does it cloud? They did that because, in part, because we as citizens elected a Congress that passed laws that allowed them to do it. Mm. So the Patriot Act. Which was on the heels things. of nine eleven, which, which yeah, everybody was freaking out. You know, at the, if if in two thousand two, everybody would have been been like, yeah, that's okay, check my stuff out. Still so raw for us. So we, you know, the the correct response to that is if we're unhappy with the fact that they're snooping on grandmothers in Idaho, then change the law. I mean, don't there's a there's a mechanism we have in place. I think we ought to change the law. I think that that was an overreaction, and we ought to say, you know what. Let's all calm down. Let's let's talk to intelligence professionals and let's get a reasoned understanding of what they what tools they need that are consistent with a democracy. And let's have laws that authorize that. That's the way to do it. I don't think that blowing up the system is um, is sometimes it is is always the best way to. I'd like to try doing it the conventional way first. In so many scenarios, you just said, let's just calm down. Like in so many situations and, and when people are just in, in mass hysteria, whether it's Ed Snowden or whether it's doping in sports or whether it's this election, I mean, you, you kind of have to say, let's just calm the fuck down. Yeah. Because it, it just gets, in our ability now as a society to just make it even louder and crazier and I'm going to yeah. tweet that and I'm going to. I'm gonna post that, and it just it just. Here's my. I was thinking. I was talking the other day with a friend of mine. What I want is a. You know how hurricanes and earthquakes have this rating. Is, this systems? is gonna be good. <laughs> so we know. If I say there was a earthquake in Los Angeles yesterday, your first question is magnitude. What, what was the magnitude? Right. right. If it was 1.0 in the Richter scale, whatever. Right. If it was a eight, it's a problem. So we accept if the fact If it's an eight, that, people are dying. So yeah. Yeah. So we don't use, we don't engage in any conversation about a quote unquote catastrophe called an earthquake without knowing where it is on the scale. So what I want is, I think it's time to do this for public controversies. 
So if Anthony Weiner is sexting with some kid in England from his phone in New York, where does that rank on the Richter scale? Is it an eight? It's not an eight. I mean, is it creepy and dumb? Yeah, but it's a one. There is nobody gets hurt. I mean, he doesn't, he's not meeting the person. He's not having, even if he was, he's not in public life. I mean, the whole thing, it's a one. It's maybe a 0.5, right? Uh, you know, and I can go through, we can go through all of the, if, if, if uh, Brangelina have a fight on their airplane, it's a 0.25. I knew you were going to say 0.25. <laughs> it's like, I mean, couples fight. They happen to be famous, but I mean, this is not the end of the world. But I can systematically, if Hillary wants to, I would, you know, I'm partisan. If she uses her BlackBerry for, that's okay, it's maybe it's a two, mm. right? It's not an eight. It's not the end of the world, right? We, we have completely lost our ability to appropriately calibrate the magnitude of these controversies. Yeah. And sometimes we go crazy and we talk about something like it's an eight and it's a one. Right. And there are other times when it is uh, an eight, and when it's a, a legitimate eight, and we treat it like it's a one. And this, that, you know, if you want to keep on sports, the NFL is a walking eight that is treated like it's a one. And this drives me crazy. I know, I read, I read your position on this. I, I, and, we, and I want to talk about that, but, because I blame the media for, and I probably could be wrong, I am probably wrong, but I blame the media for all of that, right? So if you take what is a one that ought to be look at, look for example at the at the police you know the, the the violence and the and the the shootings and you know my suspicion is that that has happened forever yeah but now we're talking about it we're, we're covering it so yeah. people are getting shot live on facebook or live on snapchat you know so it's we are seeing it and then when when it's that accessible then the media they love this shit they love hurricanes, they love tornadoes, they love earthquakes, they love shootings, they love doping contracts. They love that stuff. And then they just run, they sit around and 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 beg for those stories. Yeah. Right? And they make them eights. Although the thing about police shooting, it's interesting because I think it's uh in the at the at the end of the day, we will say this is incredibly healthy. You're absolutely right. It's been going on forever and we never talked about it. You have to talk about it. And we're gonna talk about it, and I think it's gonna end up with, uh, in, a very, in a very positive way, it's gonna focus police forces on adequate training and it's gonna alert citizens to the fact that when you're in an encounter with a cop, it's, when someone's got a gun, I don't care if that person is a cop or not a cop, it's dangerous. Right. Back, like, back down. Back down, <laughs> everyone's gotta, you know, so cops are gonna be better trained as a result. And as a society, we're gonna learn more about you have to, as people in society, have to learn how to behave in certain situations. You know, it takes, think about driving. If, you, if it's 1910, people don't know how to behave in the presence of cars. You have tons of accidents. The right. accident rate in, car accident rate in 1920 is so high, you wouldn't even believe it. People are dying left and right. We learn how to behave. If you want to have, as we apparently want to do in America, a world where everyone carries a gun, we all have to learn how to behave, right? And that, you know, that's like, it's gonna take a generation, but it's gonna be, and I mean, cops too. If, if, you, if you wanna like pull out your gun at every opportunity, then dude, I mean, you have to be super well-trained. Right, 
But it, we're now, and in, in, it's interesting, the idea of body cams, and you're already, I mean, there's already obviously cameras everywhere, but with with, with police and, and I got pulled over the other day, and the, it's for the first time ever, not mm-hmm. that I've been pulled over, but the guy came to the car, he had a body cam on, like mounted right in the center of his chest. And I was like, wow. Did you say hi to the body cam? I was, well, the, the <laughs> fucked up thing is that a lot of times, you know, you kind of be nice and, hey, buddy, how you doing? And you, and you, yeah. you guys like, hey, slow down. Get on, you know, yeah. get going. The body cam, when I saw the body cam, I thought, I'm not getting off. Because it's all being. Oh, I see what you see. Oh, you had the opposite effect. You think it makes it very, very difficult for them to be lenient. I think that, I think. Because they're well, I think that, well, they're not going to be lenient, which is fine. I'm not, I'm not asking yeah. for, but I'm just saying, once I saw that, I was like, well, he can't be. Because everybody's going to see it. Yeah. And so if, if you're, if you're, you know, have your gun out and you're worried that somebody's going to shoot you or you're going to shoot them, I mean, you're going to have to think if, if this cam is on. Yeah. Right. What happened in Charlotte or what happened in. Yeah. Baton Rouge. I mean, you got to think about those. There things. is some good. I mean, like what I say, I think good will come out of this. The one that the case that to me was the one that has always affected me emotionally the most was Sandra Bland. Mm-hmm. So she was the one. There's so many of them now that the so lady she, in Texas. She, yeah, I think it's Texas. She, it's a routine traffic stop. We have the all of the footage the, from the car from the cop car. Right. But mostly, what we have is audio. Yeah, because he has the mic on, so he they've the always had on. the audio. Yeah. yeah. And what was really interesting to me about that was, I mean, this was totally benign. She does, I forgot what she did. It was something so minor. But the cop, and she's upset because she she's obviously intimidated by the cop there. You know, we'll probably find out she was late for work. I mean, for whatever reason. But the cop escalates. His, he doesn't know how to handle it socially. Hmm. He doesn't know how to say to someone who's a little upset, you know, Hey, calm down. If he, he just had that voice. If he, if it's, you know, instead what the cop does is at every opportunity, he escalates it to the point where he's dragging her out of the car. And that's just lack of good social skills. If you're a police officer, you one of the things you have to have in 2016 is good social skills. And I feel like that tape, if we start playing that tape for officers who are in their, you know, at police academy undergoing their training and say to them, look, you can't, it's not about being the big muscly guy anymore. You have to be someone who is skilled at dealing with people who are, you know, maybe a little bit upset at you, maybe, and you've got to learn how to just. Right. And you've talked about this with, with the way, you know, like you think back, like leave it to Beaver, like what the cop car looked like and what the cop looked like. You might've had a baton and yeah. eventually had a gun. And, you know, now the, a police force looks like, they look like I mean, it's, the cars are reinforced, and they, yeah. you know, and they look like they look like soldiers. Yeah, they should be in Priuses, and they should be no. <laughs> okay. But they also to keep bring going, us, keep to bring going. us back to cycling. Um, I love cops on bikes because for this very reason, which is that they are uh, they can't be the face of the law cannot be intimidating in a uh, in a in a. Democracy. I think you get away right. with that downtown in yeah. the big cities in, or in small towns. That's fine, but but obviously, you know. Well, no, come on. What, what happened if you know, we hired as police officers a lot of ex-elite cyclists? They could do a century over the course of their day. You know, we could. <laughs> <Going yeah. from laughs> the cycle, the, the police that I've seen on bikes are not are not doing any centuries. I can tell you. That. <laughs> that's right. I love the guys on bikes in airports. That always cracks me up. <laughs> <laughs> or segways. Yeah, segways. 
Um, I want to ask a quick question because we've been, we've been. I don't want to take too much of your day, but we, uh, we, you, you, we have to talk about the NFL. But you can ask me the other. Let's question. talk about. I mean, I have, I've, I talk, I've talked about the NFL on this podcast. Are you? And and I have my own views on this. And I don't, I don't. I love the NFL. I love football. I grew up watching football. I love my son it. plays football. I love my it son. too. But that that first game of the season where Cam Newton gets five hits to the head, yeah. and where there, where there's no penalties. In fact, there's. Instead of on the most egregious one, because he has intentional grounding, they call offsetting penalties. So the defensive guy spears Cam Newton in the head, and Cam Newton, as a result, uh, grounds what, the ball. Doesn't know what planet he's on. Doesn't even know what planet. You know, falls to the ground, and they're offset. I mean, that was, to my mind, this league doesn't get it. They honestly don't get it. I don't understand. That's what I said. This is an eight, and it's, we're treating it like it's a one. And they they find the guys who hit him in the head like $24,000 the next day. Like, are you kidding me? Like, at what point do they wake up and say, all right, if we want to save football, and I want to save football. I don't know if it can be done, but I'd like, I'm a football fan. Right. They want, they have Someone has got to stand up and say, we, you know, we've got to take this seriously. You know, Simmons, Bill Simmons says, why isn't a hit to the head a 30-yard penalty? If it's a 30-yard penalty, how many hits to the head do you think people, people? how many times do they take a run at the quarterback if they know it's going to be a 30-yard penalty? Yeah, you could argue that it, it, you know, it could be at least be a field goal. A field, yeah, something. Something. Make something the penalty more, much such more that, severe. I mean, what we're asking, and this gets at something really interesting about football, right, which is that um, in every other sport, what we have seen is an evolution over time where the cognitive demands on the athlete have grown. So we have said, used to be the case, you just ran out, went out there and you ran a race. Yeah, now more. we say, yeah. no, you've got to think it through. You cannot be a moron and an elite athlete anymore. You have to think. You've got to use your, right? Football is the last sport where we say to a, an offensive line or a defensive lineman um, or a linebacker rushing a quarterback, just go all out. Now you have to use technique, but... At no point are you asked, not at no point, but you're not asked in your encounter with the quarterback to discipline your action. So they always say, well, the, you know, the quarterback at the last moment lowered his head and so the face, the hit, the helmet to helmet hit was, no, what we're saying is, is there a way, do we need to recast the nature of aggression in football such that it's considered aggression so that the entire time the linebacker is rushing the quarterback. The linebacker has to ask himself, I have to make sure I put myself in a position where my helmet is nowhere near that guy's helmet. Right. Now, is that possible? It's, it doesn't seem like that's that hard to, to to figure out. I don't know. I mean, also to the defensive back, well, they should, yeah, you I mean, cannot, you have the whole time you are tracking the receiver, you have to be thinking about the nature of the contact you will initiate with that receiver. I don't, I, don't, I mean, I think at this this current generation, these guys are gladiators. I mean, they grew up, you know, most of them grew up, you know, in, in poor communities. They're big, tough kids. And I mean, you look at the demographic of the actual players, it, it, it's, it's a different sport. Yeah. And, and why do you let your kid play football? It's an interesting question. I mean, it, it, cause so many pe parents don't. Yeah. Right. My son, so my old, my 16 year old plays offensive line. Um, you know, my view of it, he's played flag football and then he played yeah. uh, tackle football. You know, he he's never had a concussion. He doesn't the 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 contact or the impact at, at that level is not. I don't think he's. He would tell me he's not going to play in college. 
And so in 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 another year he's he's done. Yeah. But, but he's playing he's playing varsity football in Texas. In Texas. So he's got to be up against uh yeah, well, first of all he's 6'3" 250. Okay. All right. And he's and, on the big side. But but the bigger problem Wait, How did you heck, how did you, how did you end up with a, a son who's 6'3" 250? You know, he, the the three older ones were IVF babies. So maybe there could have been a mix up at the the sperm level. <laughs> Although he looks like me a little bit. Um but but I have a but I have a 7-year-old boy. Yeah. who loves football. And yeah. and his mother um, it, it didn't grow up in Texas, and we sort of lived part-time in Aspen and Austin. And she just can't believe that she's from Colorado, so that she has a seven-year-old boy that is so obsessed with football. What are you going to do? It's a, is he going to be big? Here's the, here's the problem. Once they start playing flag football, then they, they don't, you don't say, okay, you can play flag football, but then once it starts to be tackle football, you have to stop. Yeah. So we should have, as parents, we should have said, nope. You're on. Although he does do all the other sports, he plays baseball. He's on the swim team. He rides his bike. He mm-hmm. he, you know, does all these things. So we should have just said everything else. But you can't even start flag football. But I, it, I'm not making any sense, and I don't have an answer other than my son is playing flag football. He's obsessed with his big brother who plays varsity football. Yeah, and. All he wants to do is go in the backyard and throw the football. Yeah. But so many parents are like, nope, lacrosse, basketball, baseball, try whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, but it's interesting because. And I think the NFL, I have two, just let me just say, I have mm-hmm. two problems. One, obviously, there's been this big financial settlement that the league, you know, settled with the players or the retired players. But these guys were getting banged from the day that they started playing tackle football. So the so this whole yes, they were getting concussions in the NFL, but they were getting them in college, they were getting them in high school, they were getting them in middle school. Mm-hmm. Nobody was going back and suing their middle yeah. school. Not yet. I think caught the college game is I, the next one that's going to have to deal with the liability here. And my big big issue is cuz I think this is the NFL's biggest issue. And my problem with it is I think Goodell knows that, I think the NFL knows that, and they're going, oh, fuck. And that's why they go, okay, hang on. We we need something. We, we got to divert the attention here. Mm-hmm. So what do you get? You get Deflategate. You get Tom Brady. You get domestic abuse. They 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 love, they don't love those stories, but in a sense, yeah. as much as it takes away from change the real the, story. They, they want to change the conversation. Yeah. And they go. I believe that, that. I believe that is happening. I totally agree with you, and that's what drives me crazy. I mean, at the very least, it is also worth pointing out that football is the sport where the athletes have the worst deal. So they get the smallest share of revenue. They have non-guaranteed contracts. They have incredibly short careers. They have the three and a half years load. is the is the average yeah. career. I mean, there's no. At the very least, the football, the NFL should say, you know what? In recognition of the fact that we are asking you to play a profoundly dangerous game. We're going to give you concessions that we would not ordinarily give professional athletes in any, in say basketball. So they should, what if they just said, look, 10%, we're taking 10% of gross revenues of the sport. We're putting them in a, uh, or putting them aside and we will compensate. That's the extra bit you get for being an NFL player. Or if you get injured, we will, you know, this, uh, cause it's not just, it's not just, um, concussions and and neurological damage it's a whole range of things these are guys who are in wheelchairs right. 
I mean, it's like, it's a, they have to own up to that fact that the game has gotten. Have you ever been to a big college game? I have. I mean, I'm talking like a, like an Alabama, an LSU. I went a, to a Missouri. A Texas a I went to, last one I went to was a Missouri game, like uh, four or five years ago. So here you have these you know, 100,000 people. I mean, this is business-wise, revenue-wise, fucking massive. Yeah. And those kids are Zero. playing for Squaduch. That, yeah. That, and, and it's outrageous. Uh, all right. I, like I told you, man, I could talk to you for six hours, but but you can't. Well, we'll can't. have to do it again. We'll do it again. I want to come on your podcast. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll, I was thinking, I was thinking, I want to do, it's funny because I'm now planning my next season of Revisions History and I, um, uh, this issue of, uh, I'm really interested in the notion, I want to explore it through the NFL, this notion of hypocrisy um, and the ways in which hypocrisies are uh, perpetuated. Because hmm. the NFL is, their stance on drugs, among other things, is so, so almost surreally hypocritical. Re recreational drugs or PEDs? Well, for example, you know, Ricky Williams is drummed out of the sport because he wants to smoke weed. Right. Like, are you kidding me? You have a sport where people are are committing suicide because of injuries suffered on the field, where they're popping the most dangerous kind of painkillers, like it's like they're candy, right? right? Toradol. I mean, are you kidding? Right. Are you kidding? You know, Toradol. I wouldn't go near Toradol with a ten foot pole. These guys are taking Toradol weekly. They're Skittles. I mean, like your Skittles, and like, and so, so that's fine. But Ricky wants this. Ricky, Ricky, Ricky goes. By the way, the sweetest, kindest, right. nicest. Right. I mean, he could have been a, a a spokesperson for the NFL. I mean, he's exactly what you want in a human being and an athlete. And he likes to smoke a little weed, right. and that still. that just like that blew their minds. I mean. How do you, I don't understand how you can be a sentient human being and simultaneously uh, preside over a sport which is insanely destructive of, of people's bodies and minds, and at the same time, go crazy if a guy wants to smoke weed. Right. And the, I mean, you talked about Adderall, but obviously, I mean, forget it. But I mean, Adderall worries me a great deal less than the long-term health consequences of taking uh, a drug like Toradol or any of those painkillers on a chronic basis, that is serious shit. And, you know, it's interesting. The only story that I can remember, and he's, and he's a very good friend of mine, but the, the only, if you think of the history of the NFL and the talk about painkillers, which you just talked about, the only story I could think of is the Brett Favre story. Yeah. I mean, who's, who's come out and said, which Favre did, God, I don't know, 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah. And said, yo, I, I've been getting, you know, hit my entire life. And I'm hooked on these things. Yeah. And I'm going to have the courage to tell, I'm going to step away and, and, and get help. And I'm going to tell you guys that. But that's the only time I've heard that story. Yeah. And he was in a position, a very, very popular white quarterback. Yep. Is in a position to to make that admission and have people not freak out. Right. Um, you know, if it's a, I, 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 I'm not sure it would have been the case with someone who we, wasn't so beloved. And yeah. Um, By the way, he's really gotten into cycling. Oh, is that right? Loves you two probably discovered the sport of cycling around the same time. Have you have you have you gone biking with him? Oh, sure. He called me last summer, and I had never really I'd maybe met him briefly. And he said, he says, uh, Lance, I want to uh, me and me and Deanna want to fly over to Austin. 
she got a triathlon coming up. I'd like to get her fitted, and you know, I just want to come over and go for a ride. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> and I was at home. My son was at football camp, uh-huh. and I was it was just he and I. And I yeah. said, okay. He says, well, where should we stay? And I said, well, you can stay at the Four Seasons or the blah blah blah, whatever. Or it's just me and my son. You can stay with us. He goes, I'll stay with y'all. So they stayed with us. <laughs> we go for rides. Yeah. And it was so funny. This is a funny story, and I, I probably told on here before, but my son plays offensive line, and, and I have a, a golfing buddy of mine who's an old baseball coach at Texas who is a great athlete, and he loves Luke. And he would see Luke and say, you know, are you jumping rope? You play offensive line, do you jump rope? Mm-hmm. And Luke, 16 years old, nah. Brett Favre gets to the house, from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, flies to Austin, stays at the house, walks in, sees Luke, says, you play football, boy? And he says, yes, sir, he's what position? He's right guard, whatever he said. First question from Brett Favre, do you jump rope? <laughs> First question. And Luke's, I mean, he literally shit his pants. <laughs> and to this day, he doesn't jump rope. I'm like, Luke. He still doesn't? No, I'm like. Brett the, Favre comes to the house and says. <laughs> Anyways. Dude, thank you for All coming right. on. This fun. is part one. We'll do part two we'll some part other time. Two. And, yeah. and I'm going to check the bike position. And um, yeah. Thank you so much, Malcolm. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Forward Podcast. Like like I said at the top of the show, if you have anything you want to say, if you have a suggestion, please, God knows I need suggestions, um, or questions, or concerns, or criticisms, or whatever, let me know. Send me an email. Send it to the forward podcast at we do sport.com. I know it's long. I know it's a little confusing. The forward podcast at we do w e d u sport singular.com. The forward podcast at we do sport.com. 